For generation after generation, we have gathered for one reason. To tell the story. The one that changes everything. That salvation is not found within, but with Jesus. We tell it again and again, generation upon generation. We teach them the Bible isn't just 66 books bound together. It's one big story. When we see the Bible as one narrative, it changes how we read it. We see that Adam's fruit led to Noah's reign and Joseph's pit. We see that Abraham's ram and Jonah's fish and David's giant foretold us of Mary's manger and the one who would reunite man with God. When we see that every story points to the one, it changes how we teach our kids, how we see ourselves, how we see God. We have one mission, one purpose, one job to do to share the story with them in as many ways and as many times as we can. This is the big story of the Bible. This is the one story that changes everything. This is the Gospel Project for Kids. I wanted to introduce to you the new curriculum that we're going to be using in children's ministry, not my message. My message is not going to be the kids' message today, but I wanted to introduce to you what we're going to begin using as a curriculum in our children's area. If you've never served back there, you don't have kids and you haven't been back there, you may not realize that it's not abnormal for our church to have a hundred children from birth to fifth grade on a given Sunday. We have a lot of kids. Our church likes to make babies, all right? I'm good with that. I'm good with that. It's a great privilege and responsibility, isn't it? I mean, there's responsibility that comes with being a parent. There's responsibility to being a member of a church that has children in it that need to be discipled. And so we are very particular and and we're very conscientious of what curriculum we use and teach and what we want to do. This is our heartbeat for kids' ministry. When your kid is here on a Sunday morning, we want them to hear the gospel message in a way that they understand, but we want to empower you, the parent, to continue conversations at home with those kids. And so with this new curriculum, there's going to be more opportunities, more content that you are supposed to engage in with your child at home. And if you already have a routine where you're engaging in scriptural dialogue with your kids at home, great, run with that. But if you've never done that before, if you did not grow up in a family that modeled that for you, we're going to have some great tools to help you get started. And we want you to recognize that you might be seeing some new emails or text messages. Grab a hold of those. Engage in that opportunity because more powerful than their Sunday school teacher is the voice of their parents in their life. And so when you can speak God's truth into their life, it's going to take root in a more powerful way. So commercial over, wanted to let you know about that. Uh, Today is week two in our series called The Prophets. And last week, we looked at the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was given a role where he was part of a nation that had a covenant with God. And this was the agreement. God will provide for them a land to live where he will protect them from any outside attackers. 
He will make sure that the land is fruitful and grows what they need to eat and survive, that there will be water to drink, that all of that will be taken care of as long as they don't turn to foreign gods. Because when they turn to foreign gods, they would begin participating in activities like child sacrifice, sexual promiscuity, all kinds of destructive behavior that would follow the worship of these foreign gods and these idols, and the nation had fallen away. And Jeremiah had the role of saying, if we don't correct our course, God's judgment is going to be on the way. And the people of Judah at that time, the leaders of the temple, they took Jeremiah and they beat him and put him in stocks for delivering God's message. And so judgment was on the way. Today we're going to be doing an overview of the book of Daniel. And I may not be doing as much storytelling today because there's just so much powerful content that I believe needs to get through. And so we got to pull up our big boy and big girl pants today as we get into the message, all right? Can you stick with me through this? There won't be as many stories, but I believe that the content is compelling. And so we're, we're, we're going to dive into this. But, but before we dive into it, I do have one illustration that, that I want to share with you. Um, dial back in your memory to dial up internet. Do you remember those days? You remember those sounds? Do you remember the AOL discs that were just everywhere on your computer? Like, or, or any store you went to, you'd find those AOL free trial discs. I mean, just everywhere. Different life. 20-year-olds, I know you don't get this, but there was a time where there was a, an internet browser called Netscape. All right? Netscape dominated because they were the very first internet browser for a few years. And I know some of y'all don't know anything about that, but they were the dominant technologi technological force in internet browsing as things got started. And then they disappeared, and I believe it was because they, they missed one really key opportunity. There, there was a 24-year-old kid who came into their office to apply for a job. And he was a little bit socially awkward. He had a decent enough resume, but his social awkwardness, they just kind of looked at him and they're like, you wouldn't be a fit here. You don't have the right stuff to offer us. And so after looking around for a technology job for about a year, he finally gave up on it and he decided, I'll just, I'll just start my own company. And so he started a company called Zip2 that pretty much no one has ever heard of, but he sold it to the computer company Compaq in 1999. He used that money to co-found with some other people a business called PayPal that maybe you've heard of and used before. And then he sold that with his other co-founders for $1.5 billion to eBay in 2002. And he could have just retired on that money because he was well off, but he decided to start a few more companies like Tesla, maybe you've heard of it, yeah, um, SpaceX, The Boring Company, Solar City. He's done a few things. He's actually Elon Musk, who's the most wealthy man on the planet. And the reason that he got started in all of those things is because his dream of getting just a basic position at a tech, technology company at 24, that dream got squashed. And how would you feel if you were the hiring manager at Netscape every time you see the stock price of Tesla going up and up and up and be like, I'm the idiot who wouldn't hire that guy? That would be a tough position to be in. But for us, we kind of love the story of like, you know, Elon Musk, like it's crazy that they wouldn't hire him. And now he's one of the most successful technology engineers ever. He started the most incredible companies that are changing the planet. Like it's unfathomable that they wouldn't hire him. We love the redemption story, but I know 
and you know in the part of the pessimistic area of our mind that not everybody's story gets to turn out to being the most wealthy person on earth. Not everyone who has a dream gets to see that dream come true. And we have to balance in our life. What does it mean when God takes us through a difficult, dark, painful season against the time where he miraculously answers prayer in an incredible way and brings all of our dreams to life? Like, how do we balance those two things out? Because we know that they both happen. And sometimes we go through such a long, good season that when we go through a difficult, when we go through a valley season, it makes us question, what in the world happened, God? Are you still there that you would allow suffering to touch me? And I'm sorry, but theologically, throughout the course of Scripture, you just can't argue with the fact that God will let his children go through difficult times. He will. In the course of your obedience, even when you're doing what you should, there will be times where God will let you go through a difficult season. And so how do we navigate that and how do we understand that? In this case, what we see, the, the, the new generation that has, that has been born to Judah, they are growing up in a season where their fathers and their mothers departed from God and it wasn't necessarily their fault. But the kids in Judah at the time that Babylon invaded and destroyed them it wasn't their fault yet, but it affected them. And in the book of Daniel, Daniel gets taken from Judah when Babylon comes in and, and destroys part of the city and defeats it. And Daniel is probably about 14 years old. He was a teenager when this happened. And King Nebuchadnezzar and, and the Babylonians, they came in and they took many people from the noble and the royal families, many young children, and they brought them into service. And Daniel was one of those. And so you think your freshman year of high school was difficult. You don't even know. About 14 years old, and we don't have the direct answer for this, but he was trained and taught under the, the, the main eunuch in service to the king. And theologians generally feel like he probably and the other men that, that are described in the book of Daniel that were in service to the king, that were Hebrew men, were probably turned into eunuchs early on. Not a good time for a 14-year-old. His name was changed. Daniel's name meant God is my judge, but it, it, was, it was changed to a name that meant Bell, a foreign god. Bell protects my life. They tried to change his identity. His diet began to change. They tried to have him eat the foods that were common to them that would be considered unclean. And I want to tell you that just right when we get to the beginning of this, when you look at Daniel as a young teenage man, he is coming to a circumstance where he's being taken into a whole other culture, but in his heart, he had already determined to follow the one true God. And if you think that your teenager's faith getting figured out later is the answer that maybe in their 20s they'll come around, you need to understand that if you have a teenager, a preteen, a child in your home, now is the time to pour the truth of the word of God into them. Because when they are outside of your care and they make decisions, they will stay on that foundation if you have poured it into their life. They, they, they will know the truth and they will choose. And Daniel had made the choice already because when he came in this culture, he already began putting up the boundaries. And, and come on, I, I know some men will give me an amen with this one. He said, I can't eat the meat that they serve here in Babylon because it's outside of what God's scriptures say for them at that time. And so he lived off of vegetables. It takes some commitment to say no more barbecue, right, man? 
Like, like that takes some commitment to say, I'm just going to live off water and vegetables and be a vegetarian. Like dude's heart was focused on God to make that decision. Like there's decision after decision after decision. And in fact, when, when they were, Daniel's name that he was given, Belshazzar, when the, the queen was talking about him in chapter five, verse 12 of Daniel, um, she, she said, he did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar. Like, there's this understanding that the king calls him Belshazzar, but Daniel has not accepted this name, and he continues to be called Daniel throughout the book because he did not just adopt this new identity. Like, Daniel was someone who was holding fast to the faith that he was raised in. A couple other general things, and I know this may not be the most exciting part of it. The book of Daniel is written in two different languages. It's written in Hebrew and Aramaic, which is supposed to emphasize the beginning historical prologue of the book. And it's written in what's called a chiastic structure, which I understand this might be just a little too boring. But just in case you're reading the book and you, and you say to yourself, this doesn't seem quite chronological. There's a reason for it, and it's a memory device. Because as the book begins, it starts with a history prologue. And then, and then it goes into a dream, and then it goes into make the decision to worship the foreign god or perish, and then it goes to judgment on the king. And so we, we have that, so dream, worship, judgment, and then it works in the next step is judgment, worship, dream. And it's a memory device that they would use in a lot of, of the, the old writings. We see these in the book of Genesis as well. And so as you're reading it, it's not, necessarily, it's not supposed to be directly chronological, but it's written with that device so that it's easy to remember. And so the chapters of the book work in that, that area. It's not meant to be chronological. It's a chiastic structure. Uh, another interesting background on the book is that Judaism, uh, they, did, they don't use the label prophet for Daniel. And as you read the book of Daniel, you, you would say there's some obvious prophecy in here, and even more obvious than some of the other people that they would refer to prophet, and there's a couple reasons that they do that. One of the main ones is with most prophets, it's like they get this one direct message, and that gives like, they have clarity about that message or that vision, and they give that. But Daniel's life and his ministry, it was lived a little differently. As you see it, it's like the Spirit of God just rested on him differently, and he would be given a problem or he'd be asked to translate a vision or told, or the king told him in, in Daniel 2, he said, tell me what my dream is and then translate it to me. Because I don't want a false interpretation of my dream. So you tell me what the dream is and you translate it. And, and, and Daniel would pray and, and the spirit of God would just reveal to him these things. And it was different than the other prophets because there was like, there's just this resting spirit, this ruach of God that was on him. And so he was, he's described in Jewish literature as a sage because the way that the Spirit of God was with him was greater than that of other prophets. And it's just an interesting note about Daniel because there's this wisdom that reigned in him. The foreign kings and the other rulers would look at him and say it's obvious that the spirits of the gods are in you because they didn't know how to translate it. They didn't believe in the one true God. And so that's how they would translate. There's just, there's a spiritual power that rested on Daniel that was consistent. It was different than other prophets. And so Daniel, as he goes into this, he's a young man and his concept of home was taken from him at a teenager, as a teenager. And he's brought into this other land and he's being trained by the head eunuch. He's being taught the language and he's being used in service to the king. His education and his time of service, he grew in stature and respect. And into Daniel chapter two, I mentioned it a little bit, but Nebuchadnezzar the king, he had this dream that greatly disturbed his soul. And he wanted his magicians, 
and his sages and, and, and his wise men to tell him what the dream meant. But he recognized, if I tell you the dream, you'll just make up a meaning, and I don't want that. And the dream disturbed him so much, he said, you know, if, if someone can't tell me what the dream is and what it means, I'm going to have all of you put to death because you're all useless. And Daniel sought after the Lord and God revealed to him what the dream was and what the meaning was. And his dream was of a statue. And there's different layers of metal in the statue. And the top of it, the head was gold. And Daniel told the king, the, the golden head, that represents you. It represents your empire. And I think that, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar probably started puffing out his chest. He's like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. I like being the head. I like being made of gold. And he went through the other layers and said, these will be empires and there are other metals. And he said, and then there's going to be a great rock that's taken and it's going to be flung down and it's going to destroy all of them and turn them all to rubble. Probably didn't enjoy that part of the dream as much. And that this, this rock will grow into a mountain and influence and that will be a kingdom that will have no end. And it's a description of these great empires that will fall. Now, you would think that that would be enough warning. And he recognized that that vision and that interpretation, it was from the Most High God, and he recognized that. But it didn't take a really great hold because into chapter 3, what he decided to do was, it appears that he took his vision of this statue and he created a 90-foot pillar and statue that was most likely plated with gold of himself for people to worship. And that's where we find chapter three. And we're gonna, we're gonna focus into one little section and interaction that some of you guys ha- have heard of. It might be new to some of you, but we're gonna put, these, uh, we're gonna put Daniel, 3, chap- Daniel chapter three, verses 13 through 27 up on the screen. And this is where we're gonna focus in. And so he, he created this statue, this idol, that at the playing of music, people were to, to fall down and they were to worship the statue. But some of the Hebrew men who came with Daniel, they, they refused And so verse 13, when he found the the three men who refused to worship his idol that he he made, the king was, in verse 13, the king was furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now just to pause there for a second, the king's tone here is a little bit patient. I mean, granted, he's threatening murder right now, but it's a little bit patient. He's like, I'm going to give you a chance because... Right now, I have you in my grips, and there is nothing that can save you from me. He believed himself to be like a deity. He believed that he deserved worship. He believed that there is no other God above him, and when he said, what other God can save you from my hand, he had confidence that these guys were about to turn their tails under themselves and do what he said to do, because that's what people did. Nebuchadnezzar was a brutal man. Like, I I want you to understand that they had seen other people put to death. When he conquered Judah, he he had his men chase down the king. And when they had caught him, they killed the king's sons in front of him and made him watch. And then they took out the king's eyes. That was the type of brutality that Nebuchadnezzar was capable of. 
And so there was no doubt in these men's mind that if they did not follow the instruction of the king, that they would get thrown into the furnace. So he expected that they would listen. He had a track record of brutality. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men were wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men firmly tied fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come out here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, perfects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes, were not, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Now, just a bit about this fire. Babylonians knew how to do iron working at the time. They also had brick kilns, and so this, this furnace was at least capable of 1,300 degrees Celsius. It was at least capable of smelting iron. And so there's no question about the capacity to, to burn and to kill people who are even too close to it. And I can't, I can't stress to you enough that as they were brought, like the expectation was it was over for them. And I just want to pause for a minute. Like, I mean, because they, they surely had this mix of faith, of belief that God was going to do something, but they were also prepared for what if he doesn't. And, and I think that there's some great lessons to be learned from the way that they trusted God in this circumstance. And there's theology in here that, that is right on, but it's not neat and pretty. Like, it, it, it doesn't just fit really well on a bumper sticker. And, and I want to kind of break through the three pieces of this. The first thing in their response to the king, when they were put in the circumstance where they had to choose life or death, like life and just worship the idols or death, be true to God. And, and the first part of their trust that we see is they first started by saying that the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. They had trust that God was powerful enough to save. And in your understanding of God and the circumstance that you're walking through, if you're in a difficult time, if you're in a difficult spot in your marriage, a difficult spot in your career, the first thing that I want to remind you from the truth of the word of God is that God is powerful enough to handle your situation. His power is not lacking. He can do it. You can trust the fact 
that he has the capacity to provide what you need. And when they were in this situation where everyone else was worshiping it, it would have been so easy to fall into line. But they made a decision that we are going to walk in the ways of God, even if it leads us to a cost, because we know we can trust in God's power. They started there. Our God is able to save. And then they had confidence as well. And that's the second part. And so the first first point, trust that he is powerful enough to save. The second one, trust that he will save. That it's in God's nature that he wants to work and do good things in the life of his children. In the New Testament, Jesus describes our heavenly father and the way that he responds to our prayers as a good father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. But there is a reality that we live in that we understand that when we ask things that are in the will of God, he says he'll give them, but he doesn't always answer our prayers with a yes. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had seen and they had heard stories and they knew people who were put to death in their life. Not everyone escaped death at the hands of the king. Not everybody who was living for God in Judah survived or or was there in, in exile with them. Like they had seen loss and death and suffering. And we know that sometimes God does work the miracle, but he doesn't always. And this is, this is what I think that we easily miss in the book of Daniel. Because when Daniel first was brought to Babylon, he was about 14 years old. It's believed that he was there for 70 years. And when we, we read Daniel, it's like miracle, 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 prophecy, provision, blessing, freedom. And it's all condensed down. And we miss the truth that this is 70 years. There were so many prayers that were prayed by the people of God in Babylon. There were so many prayers that were prayed by Daniel that did not get answered on the timeline that they would have liked them to. And there are times where God will let you walk through a valley. And I believe And this is where the theology gets messy, but this is right on. I believe we should have an expectation that God will answer the prayer. But I believe that our faith in our Heavenly Father, that our trust in our Heavenly Father, that our understanding of eternity and all that we will inherit in the kingdom of God, that trust and that faith should be so strong that if we look at this life on earth and say, if it never balances out here on earth, I know that it will more than balance out in the kingdom of God. That my confidence that when I am face to face with him, that everything will be restored and made right in his presence, it weighs out on if things don't feel fair here on earth. And that has to be part of the equation. And that's the third point is that we need to trust even when he doesn't answer. And that's what they they were saying in here, that even if God does not deliver us, we want you to know your majesty, we will not serve your gods. We will not depart from the faith that we know to be true. And it's interesting because amongst the the Jewish teachings, there is division about the afterlife. But I think that it's pretty clear where Daniel weighed in on this and where his close friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because in Daniel chapter 12, in the book of Daniel, he gets very prophetic. He talks about the Son of Man returning uh, on the clouds. Like he talks about Jesus' return. And in, ver- in chapter 12, he talks, and what I want to focus in on this part of the passage that I'm going to share with you, and I apologize, I didn't put this on the screen. You can write it down or you can read along in your Bible in Daniel 12, verses 1 through 3 later. Daniel uses the terms the book of life, which is a clear indication of his expectation of judgment and eternal life. Let me read it to you. 
starting at verse one of chapter 12 in the book of Daniel. And he's describing the end times. And he says, at that time, Michael, the archangel who stands guard over your nation, he will arise. Then there will be a time of anguish greater than, than any since the nations first came into existence. He's describing the, the tribulations that are described in Revelations. But at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book of life will be rescued. Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up and some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting disgrace, heaven and hell. Those who are wise will shine as bright as, sky, as the sky and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. In Revelations chapter three, verse five, it says, all who are victor- victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. It is clear to me that Daniel had an expectation of judgment and eternal life. And it would be an expectation that he would be speaking about that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so when they were faced with the decision of depart from walking with God or face death, they had a perspective that my name is written in his book. That it's written in ink and no one can take me away from him. And I, I think, and band, you guys can make your way up. I'm going to begin to close this up. I think, and I have an expectation that so many of us would look at a situation like that and say, I would plant my feet and I would die for my faith. And, and, and many of us would. And, and that's honorable. But I have, I have this issue with the fact that we say, I would die for my faith, but we fail to live for our faith. And, it, and it's, it's a logical issue. Like it's a problem with logic in our mind when we say, I would die for my faith. I would not back down. Maybe you're just stubborn. Because if you're not waking up and saying, I just, I have to bring my worship before God because he is worthy. I have to choose to walk integrity because I want to glorify my father in heaven. I want to pour love and kindness into people's life because Jesus has poured love and kindness into my life. The, the attributes, the fruits of the spirit should be on display in our life. And if we say, I would give my body to be burned in the furnace because I will not back down from following God, but we never follow God in our life, there's an issue there. And there should be a wake up call moment that even when we say, you know what? I would give my life for my faith because I do believe in Jesus. Well, I need to start giving my mornings up for my faith. I need to start, start giving my pride up for my faith. I need to put my pride to death in that furnace. Because if I'm too embarrassed to give my heart to him in worship, that does not make logical sense. If I say I would give my whole life to him. Why am I saying I'd give him my death, but I'm not actually giving him my life. I'm not giving him my words. Are we putting our actual life under the lordship of Christ in the teachings of scripture? Because there is a life to come. And my, my, my concern for our city, my concern for our church and our households is how many names from Cape Coral are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because there is a list. And what Scripture teaches, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And when you confess that he is Lord, that isn't just about uttering the statement. It's about it being true to your life that you say he has lordship. He has authority. I will follow him. 
Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? To where if you ever were in the situation, you could enter into it and say, I know where I will be. I know where the scales will be balanced. I know when I stand before him, as Jesus said in Revelations, I will never erase their names from the book of life. Now this isn't just about the pressure of, we've got to get it together. We've got to start living with him. This is the reality that if, in your, if you're living through a season or a generation the way Daniel was, where it feels like things aren't working out, the beautiful thing about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace of difficulty is that they weren't seen as being alone. That in the midst of this terrible time where they thought their life was probably over, Jesus showed up in the midst. And it's congruent with the promises of Christ that he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. If you're in the middle of fighting for your marriage, when you begin to walk in the ways of Jesus Christ, he says, I will be with you through it. When you walk in his ways, you can trust him for the results. And he says, he will be with you. When you place your faith in him, he says he will be with you. And church, this is another place where, man, we have to rise up. It's a beautiful opportunity to rise up. Not only should Jesus be with you, but the church should be with you. You should allow someone access to your life. And church, if things are just going great for you, or even if it is a mess, it's the right time for you to reach into someone's life and say, we need to do this together. We need to talk about our relationship with God together. We need to talk about the study of scripture together. We need to talk about living this life together because you weren't meant to do it alone. You're meant to have the presence of God moving through life with you and you're meant to have the hands and feet, the body of Christ moving with life, moving through life with you. And if you've been trying to fight it alone, I'm sure you're exhausted. I'm sure you're hurt and I'm sure you're lonely. You can find healing here. You can find love here, both in the arms of God and a church body that will surround you. Will you stand as we pray and worship? Father, I pray for anyone whose heart is heavy in this place. In a legitimate, terrible moment, maybe a terrible generation, maybe a terrible decade, maybe it's been difficult for far too long. Help us to trust Help us to walk with faith. Help us to walk in your ways knowing that you will bring good about. Knowing that you will balance the scales. And God, I pray that you would just convict hearts of people who need to take that step. Would you just convict us to reach out for help, reach out for community, reach out for someone to, to pray for us, to be with us. Don't let us pass through this moment without taking the step of obedience that you put on our heart. In Jesus' name. Let's bring our worship before him.